So tonight I want to explore some of our ideas that we might have around the concept of self and no self. Really exploring this concept in Pali of Sakya Diti. Most Buddhist practitioners think to have a self is not a good thing. And we hear things like the quote from Wei Wu Wei, maybe you've heard this before. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% .9 of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. And so when we hear things like this, you know, um, it usually gets a little bit of a chuckle. Um, we might think that we're supposed to get to a place of anatta, or this idea of no self, concept of no self, where this sense of self disappears and we see and know everything as impersonal, an impersonal arising and passing. But perhaps there's another way to think about it, and that's what I'd like to explore this evening. Maybe rather than dissolving this sense of self and trying to reach an impersonal nature, perhaps we could think of our situation more as one of refashioning or regenerating ourself in accord with the Dhamma or with the way things really are. Perhaps the sense of ourself actually has a place in the whole play of things. So I really want to explore with you this self-view and see if we can understand something more about it. Maybe what we need to let go of and what we don't need to let go of. So we have a little bit more clear understanding of our practice. I think basically our practice always comes down to one thing, and that is letting go of clinging. And this is the real point of our practice, is to understand clinging and to know how to let go of clinging. So then, how does this affect our view of self, or our personality, or even our personal experience? What does this idea of clinging have to do with that? The word in Pali for self-view, or sometimes translated as identity view, is sakya ditti. It is also translated as personality view, or even the word ego, which I think is really more from the Western psychotherapeutic traditions, although it's a word that has come into the Dharma. And Sakya Ditti really means that we regard the five skandhas to be myself or belonging to me. In other words, I take this body to be myself. I take my feelings to be myself. I take my perceptions to be myself. 
I take my mental conceptions to be myself. And I take consciousness to be myself. And when I take these things to be myself, there is a form of clinging, which gives rise to this identity view, which is called Sakya Ditti. And this is really what gives shape to our personality, depending on how much clinging there is to these uh, five skandhas. And Sakya Ditti can be broken down even further into what the Buddha calls three obsessive views. And it's these views that give rise to the activity of conceiving that is governed by the three torments of the mind, greed, hatred, and delusion, which are underlaid by ignorance. The first of these obsessive views is called ditti, which means view or gives rise to the sense of me or myself. But this is only one view. There's also the view of, in Pali, it's called mana, which is translated as conceit. And this is the view of I, or I am. It's when we experience the um, mind states of pride or arrogance, when we really have a sense of being somebody. And as a reminder, this conceit, this mana, doesn't go away until the third stage of awakening. So we experience this form of conceit that is called one of the obsessive views into very high stages of our uh, awakening. And the third obsessive view is tanha, which is craving, which gives rise to the sense of mine. This is mine the way that we take possession of things, whether it's people or things or our experiences or our body or whatever it is, these five skandhas, this tanha, this clinging that gives rise to mine. I am or me and mine. And these three obsessive views are also called the Three Springs of Papancha. And we all love Papancha. You know, Papancha, that proliferation of mind, you know, where mind just goes off in one association after the next, and we tend to follow it because it's so fascinating and seductive. But it's these three views that actually are the springs for this papancha, because the mind embellishes experiences by interpreting it in terms of mine, or I, or myself. We wrap this kind, this identity around our thoughts. And it's the thoughts that then give shape to this view and who we take ourselves to be. So one of the phrases the Buddha repeats in many of his discourses, in one text in particular called the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, to help practitioners to cut through 
this papancha and these obsessive views. He says, seeing as it actually is with proper wisdom, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And it's something that as you read through the discourses, the Buddha is continually reminding us to reflect in this way. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So we can have deep insight into this, not mine, not I, not me. But just because we have insight into not clinging on to these things, these skandhas, conceit can still rise up and does give rise even to an identity around the idea of no self, that I am nobody, you know, I'm not a person, none of this belongs to me. And we can just wrap a whole other identity around this way of thinking about who I am. Because this is just another conception of our experience that we can easily grasp onto. There's this um, teaching story that I'd like to read that kind of points to this. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, saying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The shamas, the custodian watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. So we can build up this whole sense of who, how we're supposed to do this practice, who we're supposed to be, and more and more not see how we're just building up another conception. I remember a time a number of years ago when I was in India with uh, someone who I consider my teacher, Punjaji, a great Indian master who was teaching. He was uh, an elderly at the time in his 80s, and he was teaching in Lucknow, India, at the times I was going to India for a number of years. And I had the great uh, fortune to spend time with him some years, uh, some, some months over diff different years. And I was with friends, and we were having a number of very powerful experiences that gave us very deep insights into the nature of who we were. And this one time, I was with a small group of friends, and we were really reveling in this wonderful feeling of insight and sort of the, the, the bliss and some joy that was arising through the letting go of this uh, uh, configuration of how I knew myself to be. And yet there was one friend who really didn't get so much what was going on. 
And I remember when I, now I can reflect back on this, I, I couldn't see it at the time, but I remember the kind of conversations that we would have kind of behind his back. You know, he just doesn't get it. You know, why does, you know, it's so simple, it's so easy, you know, we're just, you know, we're really understanding, and he just doesn't understand. And we would put him down, and we would judge him, and make him wrong, and say, well, and this one friend said, you know, oh, she was in relationship with him, and she says, well, I don't even know if I want to be in relationship with somebody who doesn't get it. You know, and I could just see how we were building up all this, you know, kind of conceit and arrogance around the kinds of experiences that we're having, and doing that than putting somebody else down. And so it's so easy, even in the letting go and in these openings that can happen for us, we still may not see the identity that's taking shape around our conceptions, our views. So how does this identity take form. This is a definition of ego or self from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, who is a teacher in the Diamond Heart School. He's the founder of the Diamond Heart School. And he says that ego is a psychic structure that is based on crystallized beliefs about who we are and what the world is. And he says, these beliefs form in our early childhood and give rise to a solid structure or a belief in a particular identity. And I like that definition very much because I like the word crystallized beliefs. Because when I hear that word, I get an image. You know, you get an Im I, I get an image of a crystal. And you know how a crystal is, is, is kind of has a lot of parts that are kind of jutting out, and it's very rough and um, kind of very solid and hard. And I really get a sense that this is what happens in the mind when we are crystallizing around these ideas of who we take ourselves to be. You know, we, we get a sort of a, a sense of a hardness in, in this structure of, of who we are. And we can see, we don't have to go very far to really look to see these, how these crystallized beliefs take form. I mean, we can really see here how we might characterize ourself around one thought. You know, one thought, which is a certain belief that can arise in the mind, just one thought. And then it gives shape to our experience and who we take ourselves to be. Someone was talking about this today in one of the interviews, saying that he could see the thought arising, a thought of, I'm not as good of a yogi as the others, other, the others are here. You know, just this thought of, you know, that others may have had too. You know, I'm, I'm, look, everybody is practicing so well and they're so quiet, but, you know, I'm just not as good as everybody else. And then how that, you know, if we don't see it, how that can give form to a sense of our identity. Or this person was saying that, you know, how here at the Forest Refuge, you really can sit in your rooms. You don't have to come in the, uh, the Dharma Hall. But, you know, if you 
aren't seen in the Dharma Hall, then the thought might arise that, well, the other people might be thinking that I'm not really practicing. You know, you're really practicing if you come in the Dharma Hall. But then if you come in the Dharma Hall, then other people really see how you're practicing. You know, and then that can give rise to a particular kind of view as well whether you're doing well, whether you're walking slow, whether you're not walking slow. And we can see how these, these just a thought can start to give shape to who we think we are in our whole experience. Or the one thought, my practice isn't going very well. Or the thought, I'm not enlightened, and I have to practice hard to get enlightened. You know, and we have, we have that kind of thought. Now, maybe it's true, but it's still a, a conception in the mind that we can so easily begin to identify around and solidify. We, of course, have limiting thoughts about everything about ourselves. We can have thoughts about our level of intelligence or our age or our attractiveness, or our how emotional stable we are, um, or our physical strength, you know, being strong or weak, or, or our health, in ways that even here you can see ways that your mind can configure around these thoughts. I noticed even in myself over this week when I was giving some thought to this that there was a, a particular piece, a particular part that I see in myself that I, I said, wow, I really have to pay attention to that because I can see how I can start to create an identity around this. And this is forgetfulness. You know, I'm so surprised just in the last six months or so how I have moments where I feel like I have amnesia. You know, where just something that happened a few hours ago, I completely forget. And I'll say something to somebody and they'll say, oh, but don't you remember I was there at lunch? You know, and I'll go, oh, right. You know, and I, I feel rather st stupid sometimes. And I can say, oh, yeah. Just that one thought that something's wrong with me and other people are going to think something's wrong with me. And just the contraction and the constriction that can start to form in, in my being, in my body, because I have start to form that kind of view about myself. And it's been very interesting to watch, particularly as I've been giving reflection to this talk tonight, just having to, in, in a way, walk my talk in, in paying attention to this particular thought and the, the, the identity that can form around it. When we believe in these thoughts, these are the fixed ideas that hold this whole structure together, that hold our whole identity together. When we talk about self or ego in this way, we're talking about our habits of mind or sankharas, which are the conceptual frames of mind that get reinforced through repetition over time. You know, the way that they continue to arise and through the lack of mindful attention, we don't see them and then they just keep uh, uh, forming, coming into formation. 
into a, a sense of self. And these habits are, are karmic inclinations. It means that they're patterns that we have set in motion over time. And these habits build up to form the entire construction of our self-view and even our worldview. You know, it's we are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. And without awareness and mindfulness, we don't know what we're building up. And there's really very little room to do anything differently. And when we're in that place of our habitual states of mind, it's very unsatisfactory. Because we just feel ourselves kind of going round and round in this personality. And our life can feel very meaningless. It can feel hollow or shallow. And I think that we can all remember, you know, back before we began practicing the Dharma, when we didn't have very much insight into who we took ourselves to be. And just remembering that, kind of that, 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 well, it's really a level of dukkha, you know, that unsatisfaction that comes from that just not knowing uh, what's what and being caught in the randomness of the conditions of our personality, of our being. So it's the awareness that brings self-understanding through paying attention to what arises in our mind and in our emotions, in our feelings. It's not through denying our personality, not denying the way that it takes shape or trying to convince ourselves that we are nothing or that we're nobody, but really, rather, it's through realizing the way things are, seeing clearly what's what, and perhaps asking the question, who am I when I'm not bound by these habitual egoic patterns of mind? Who am I? Who am I as I begin to disentangle myself from these, these conceptions? Ajahn Sumedho, our wonderful elder, says that he practices working with self-view and personality this way. He says, I used to make it a practice to play with personality rather than merely trying to let go of it. To think, I've got to get rid of my personality and not attach to my emotions is one of the ways we grasp the teachings of the Buddha. Instead, I would become a personality quite intentionally, so I could listen to and observe the sense of me and mine. I would practice bringing up the thought, me? What about me? Don't you care about me? Aren't you interested in what I think and how I feel? And then he'd go on, he said, I, I'd bring up, these are my things. This is my robe. These are my possessions, my bowl. This is my space, this is my view, my thoughts, my feelings, and my rights. I am Ajahn Sumedho, he would proclaim. <laughs> I am Mahatera, 
And I am a disciple of Long Por Cha, of Ajahn Shah. And he would proclaim that on and on like this. He'd say, this is what makes me an interesting person, a person that has titles and is respected and is admired in society. I would listen to that. I would listen, not to knock it down or to criticize it, but to recognize the power of the words, the words and how I create myself. And as I did this, I would more and more find the refuge in awareness, rather than in the conditions of my personality, rather than in the fears or self-disparagement or the megal megalomania or whatever else happened to be operating in consciousness. Very interesting practice not to be afraid, not to withdraw, not to deny or suppress the arising of these conditions of how this self wants to take formation, but to actually look at it with awareness. And as he says, to take refuge in the awareness rather than the conditions of the personality. We are not practicing to erase the personality. Anatta practice is a practice for daily life that allows us to see how the personality appears and disappears to see that the personality changes according to conditions. And we, we all, I know that we've all had insight into this. You know, how, how, how you've seen how being with one person, you show up in a completely different way than when you're with another person. You know, some people really bring out the very best in us. Other people that we're with bring out the worst in us. You know, so, so it seems that the personality isn't really a fixed thing at all. Or we find that when we're in certain mind states, this brings out the worst in us. Someone again was talking about that today. He was saying that when his mind gets contentious with others, he says it's the worst part of himself. But when his mind is filled with metta and with kindness, he says it's the best part of himself. You know, so again, he can really feel this changing, the changing conditions of this personality. We may notice that when we get enough sleep, the personality shows up in one way. But if we don't get enough sleep, I mean, how does the personality manifest? You know, we can be pretty miserable and grumpy and grouchy, and then, you know, even more conceptions about who we are arise in the mind, and there can be more difficulty just, you know, even letting go. Or if we're ill, we're not feeling very well. And how, does, how do we feel, how does the personality manifest when we just come back from a really brisk walk on a clear day? You know, all the, the personalities just kind of freshened up, or this sense of who we are just feels so, so alive and vital. Or if we've done some exercise, or we've done some stretching or some yoga, all these things really make a difference. They change the way that we actually feel in ourself. Or when we're doing our yogi job, as opposed to, you know, sitting and walking very slowly, 
we have a whole different sense of ourselves. So our personality actually adapts to situations. But if we think that's who we are, we can see perhaps more clearly that it is, is a conditioned realm that is unstable. It's unreliable and it's always changing. So it doesn't seem to be a very good place to put our trust in to put our trust in this personality as something that's going to be reliable. And yet at the same time, this personality doesn't go away. So we therefore we need to see it for what it is, this changing condition. As we begin to look more deeply into who we take ourselves to be, and we really question these concepts, these conceptions that arise in the mind, we can begin to let go of these constricting ideas and not empower them in the same way. As we do that, this, this, these habits which hold this structure together begin to loosen up and we experience more space we actually can experience a more spacious quality in ourselves because we're not locked into the clinging in the same way. This, this, the, the force of the clinging is not operating in the same way. And the awareness itself creates a gap or a break in the momentum of our habitual self. And there is the possibility for something new to shine through in that gap. You might want to reflect on a time right now where this craving has dropped away. You know, today or yesterday, you know, sometime in the, in the in this recent past. Whether it was either during a pleasant experience where you really had the sense that there wasn't any clinging, or it might have even been during a difficult experience where you could just really be with the rising conditions just as they were without needing anything to be different. And as you reflect on that, what, what was that experience like? Can you get a sense of it when that craving was not strong in the mind? Can you get a sense of the spacious quality of being that is present at those times? There might be a spaciousness, there might be a kind of ease or a contentment, a kind of satisfaction. When we're not engaged in the struggle with the conditions that are arising, These moments when the clinging is not present in our experience are moments that are called momentary freedom or even temporary nibbana. Because these moments have the same quality as nibbana. We make nibbana into something really esoteric 
you know, something far away or unreachable. But really, Nibbana means that the heat from the grasping is gone in those moments. In those moments, we feel the full texture of the moment without judgment, without clinging to our story, to the conditions that are rising and passing. We're not needing things to be different in that moment. This is a moment of freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from clinging. Freedom from grasping. And when we're not grasping in those moments, what's left? What's there? We might feel this quality of peace, of ease. In that moment, we're not feeding the karmic inclination. We're not feeding the habit. So the momentum of that habit stops. And in that moment, even if it's for just one moment, this is a very powerful moment when, we're, when that, that karmic mo motion has stopped. We're not giving it the food. We're not reinforcing it in that moment. So this is, this is the freedom that is being pointed to. This moment of peace, this moment of freedom is a moment of Nibbana. Nibbana simply means cool. And perhaps you've heard this, it just means cool. During the time of the Buddha, Nibbana meant literally something cool as a result of extinguishing an ordinary fire. And it's used in the same way now. This is um, from an article from Ajahn Buddhadasa. And if you've heard of Ajahn Buddhadasa, he was one of the most influential masters in Thailand. And he only died um, in the early 90s. So he was with us for um, most of our, our lives. And many people have actually gone and was able to practice with him before he died. And so Ajahn Buddhadasa says, in the material world, this word uh, Nibbana means the usual extinction of fire. For example, some boiled rice is still hot, and a child calls, calls out from the kitchen, wait a while for it to become Nibbana. Another example is when a goldsmith melts some gold and then pours water over it to cool it down. Once cooled, the gold is used for gold ornaments. This is Nibbana. Even the fierce animals caught from the forest and trained to be tame like cats, we say that we make them Nibbana. Sensual pleasures make ignorant people cool down in their own way. And he says, this is false Nibbana, because it gives that sense of being cooled down, but actually it still has too much fire in it, because we're still caught up in the sense desire. And he says, the rupa jhanas, or the jhanas, the absorption states of the fine material sphere, brings the coolness away from the fire of sensuality temporarily for people as well. This can also be called Nibbana at a certain level. So he's really pointing to sort of the ordinariness of this word. 
He said, when it entered the Dharma language of Buddhism, Buddhism, the meaning was the same, a cool state of mind that is attained from the extinction of the defilements, of these, these torments of the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, even for a moment. The Buddha called this extinction the cessation of suffering, which means the, simply means the extinction of the heat from the defilements. And the more one, one's defilements decrease, the higher degree of coolness. The fewer obstacles, the more cool or the more nibbana exists in a particular level of mind. I think what we don't really realize is that these moments of coolness, when the clinging isn't running through the stream of consciousness, it brings with it a deep nourishment. Because in the absence of these forces of mind, it's like there is a gap. And in that gap, we come into contact with our essential nature, with our essential being. And this is very refreshing. This is very rejuvenating. It's very nourishing. This is from Sokni Rinpoche, uh, one of the wonderful Dzogchen masters. He talks about this gap. He says, this gap is like an open door to naked, original mind. When this happens, the innate qualities of the awakened state can begin to shine through naturally. In that gap, there is wakefulness. He says, with mindfulness, the string of thought that ties confusion together is suddenly no longer tying anything together, and the conditions naturally fall apart. When there is no pursuit of past thought, no inviting of future thought, that gap means the whole delusory process vanishes. The whole process vanishes. There's nothing holding, holding it together anymore. And then he says, the qualities of the heart are the afterglow. This is the deepest kind of nourishment that we can find in our experience. And every moment of temporary Nibbana, when there is no clinging, these moments are refreshing. It always, when I say that, it always, always reminds me of the Coke slogan, Coca-Cola, the pause that refreshes. Because it, it's really like that, you know, that moment where we stop, it's a pause that refreshes because the gap, it's the, the gap is there where we can actually connect more deeply with our nature and be nourished 
by the qualities of that nature. Even though at a deeper level there's still obstacles, but we're peeling back the layers more and more so that that identity or that shell of our identity gets thinner and thinner and thinner. Or we might say there's more holes poking through so that nature can shine through or the, the qualities of the heart can glow, the radiance, the brilliance of, of who we are. Buddhadasa says this is, these moments really are so normal. He says, in fact, it's these moments where we actually can find rest in our consciousness and our being are what keeps us sane because otherwise we'd go crazy or die. If we were constantly caught up in our greed and hatred and confusion and, you know, tormented, we, we wouldn't be able to survive. But there's a natural kind of inherent instinct to, to go towards that which brings rest, which brings some kind of ease within our consciousness. And he uses the example like, like an infant that knows how to take milk from the breast, just instinctually to be nourished and to find relaxation and ease in its being. And this Nibbana, the absence of the greed and hatred and confusion, it's not nothing. It's not like then our experience is one of nothingness or voidness or emptiness, because sometimes we think of that in terms of this, um, as the sense of self breaks up or we start to reach these higher stages of Nibbana, that there's a kind of a voidness or a nothingness. But there's this lovely word that is, is very not, is not known or heard very often. It's called ayatana. And ayatana means an essence or a field or a realm. And Buddhadasa refers to nibbana as an ayatana. He says that nibbana is an essence that is nourishing to all life, to all living beings. It's, it's, um, it's a, a, a realm that has qualities, that has something that we can know, that we can experience, something that is tangible. We might say that it's a kind of purified energy that is not colored by the defilements of our mind a pure, a clear, a luminous, a, a light, radiant energy that we can know, that we feel, that we touch. And in the Buddhist text, it's talked about a mind that is, or consciousness that is filled with non-greed or non-hatred, non-delusion, the absence of. But when we talk about the absence of non-greed, we're talking about renunciation or letting go. There's not, we're not greedy, but we're in a, we're in a state of, 
of relinquishment or letting go. When we talk about consciousness being filled with non-hatred, we're talking about a consciousness that is filled with loving kindness or with metta. And we can know that, we can feel that, we can experience it directly. Or a mind that is filled with non-delusion is a mind that's filled with wisdom and understanding. So this Nibbana is not an abstract thing. It's not an abstract experience, but it's an essential state that is nourishing, that is nourishment. It is the ultimate nourishment. And I believe it is truly what our heart longs for, to be able to touch into that well into that source of nourishment for our life, for our being, for our well-being. And as our experience becomes more infused with dibana or coolness, as it becomes more infused with this coolness, we begin to experience our personality in a fresh way we still experience our self or our personality. We experience ourself as individual or unique, or we may even experience ourselves as eccentric at times. No matter how enlightened we are, we will always have particular ways of speaking, particular ways of acting that make up a kind of character that is unique to us. We might even say it's personal to us, you know, the way that we manifest, the way these conditions manifest. And so then we begin to see, as this coolness starts to come into consciousness, we see the self as a process, a process of reshaping, of recreating, of regenerating, moment to moment in accord with the Dhamma, in accord with the way things are. Not a personality that is fixed or stuck, but we see ourself for what it is. We see that everything that is happening is a kind of creativity, a process of life that is moving and changing and transforming with life and vitality and creativity. That's who we are. That's this character or this personality or this individual that we are in our truest being. One that can manifest in a diverse amount of ways. Which is so necessary and important in our human world. So in our practice, we don't want to push anything away, any conditions that are arising. We don't want to be afraid of our personalities. We don't want to have to kind of hide ourselves or push ourselves away in any kind of way, but to really simply be conscious of what's arising at any given moment. Embrace all the conditions of our being, the mental, the physical, the emotional, 
conditions of, of who we are in any given moment because this is what's going to bring deeper levels of self-understanding and deeper levels of letting go. Whether we like what we see or we don't like what we see, whether we want what we see or whether we don't want what we see, can we open to it so that we can understand more deeply who we take ourselves to be? Whatever arises, can we suffuse those conditions with our awareness? the body, the mind, the emotions, to, to mingle all of these conditions with our awareness, to come into the fullness, the totality of our experience of the conditions just as they are. And remembering the Buddha's words, seen as it actually is with proper wisdom, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And then take refuge in awareness rather than the changing conditions of mind and body. Let them rise up. Let them fall away. Not clinging on to anything in this world. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.